0: Welcome to Life Extension. Life Extension is my series where I interview the scientists and pioneers of longevity. We're investigating the new frontiers of longevity for people and planet. This episode's really exciting. Today I've got Alex Zabrinokov from In Silico Medicine, one of the earliest companies to use a pure software, pure AI approach to try to discover the drivers of aging, and then the types of treatments that might reverse it. He's been working for a decade in this field where there's a lot of recent arrivals and has built one of the most important companies. We're gonna hear the whole AI storyline and uh, I think you're gonna learn as much as I did. <music> Alex, thank you for being on. I've been doing this series where I'm speaking with some of the folks who are leading the important research projects or the important companies on the theme of longevity. I think it's a topic where there's a lot of interest at the moment, and a lot of it is quite casual. A lot of it is sort of, you know, what's some news I can use? What time should I exercise? Things like that. But my goal is to get a little deeper with some folks that have been a little further under the covers and all this stuff. And I hope you can help me with that. And I think a good place to start would be just to, to understand a little bit more about your journey and where you come from and how you got into longevity ultimately. I've
1: uh, been interested in aging since uh, very early childhood, and uh, the concept of uh, inevitable decline and uh, death and you know the loss of everything did not really compute very well because it mean, was the point and um Unfortunately, I was born uh, during the time of uh, great chaos and a uh, major kind of geopolitical reshuffle. And uh, I was born in Latvia. I couldn't do science at the time, so I emigrated into Canada and uh, decided to do two degrees uh, focusing on computer science at Queen's University and then worked uh, at a couple of semiconductor companies. It was them was ATI. At that time, it was a very popular name. It's a competitor of uh, NVIDIA computer graphics, and uh, it was acquired by AMD, I, at some point in time, I accumulated enough resources to uh, be financially independent for a while and decided to pursue my lifelong dream to go and focus on aging. At that time, I was uh, already pretty good at uh, GPGPU, so uh, the uh, applications of computer graphics to uh, all kinds of processing tasks. And uh, did my grad work at Johns Hopkins, focusing on uh, bioinformatics, predominantly target discovery uh, and uh, biotechnology, and uh, worked at a lab. Then met uh, Dr. Charles Cantor, so very famous scientist uh, who used to be the head of the Human Genome Project from the Department of Energy side. He founded a company called Sequinome, Non-Invasive Prenatal Diagnostics. And I thought that you know I want to work with him for a while because I wanted to do aging diagnostics in. Uh, very similar manner as non-invasive prenatal diagnostics are done for prenatal testing, right? For Downs, Patau, Edwards, etc. So similar techniques. And uh, he wanted to set up um, something going on in uh, Moscow. And I moved there for a little while. The research center uh, consulted for sequenome uh, and um, at the pediatric oncology center also defended my PhD there in physics and mathematics focusing on racemization of amino acids in in proteins in the course of aging. Um, uh, All of our amino acids are left, left stereo orientation. And uh, as we age, some of them assume the right form, right? So they basically racemize and that leads to a form of protein damage. And you can actually use that as a biomarker of aging. So usually in forensics, they use this uh, left to right amino acid uh, ratio to determine the age of uh, a corpse, for example.
0: It's interesting. I mean, you come at the field in a different way than virtually everyone in the field. So you didn't come from a starting point in biology. You came from computation.
1: Yeah, so I got into biology from computation and I already had enough resources at the time to kind of pursue independent studies and uh, even fund some small projects. So I, of course, invested in many startups. Uh, most of them failed. Actually, I don't know of any successful longevity biotechnology company that was started, for example, from six uh, you know, to 2012. Everything I know failed. I also started um, attending conferences uh, at large, at scale, so all kinds of biotechnology conferences. And then I worked for a company called GTC Bio for a year. And that company organized uh, over 30 conferences in biotechnology, different areas in the States. So I wanted to learn a little bit more about uh, different fields of drug discovery. So uh, they had a big drug discovery conference, Modern Drug Discovery and Development uh, was a big series stem cells, regenerative medicine, et cetera, and I actually organized the conference on aging for the first time, right at um, Leo Girugarente, uh, Mike West, and many, many, many others in San Diego. That was, I think, 2008. After that, uh, again, worked in um, pediatric oncology, hematology, bioinformatics, a number of biotechs, and then one of my friends from ATI, many of them, many of my friends transitioned to NVIDIA and assumed senior roles. And one of my friends uh, told me that, look, Alex, you are doing this wonderful stuff with uh, machine learning and uh, aging research. Why don't you come and speak at NVIDIA GTC? It's a big conference on uh, AI, well, anything related to uh, computer graphics. And um, I went there, so presented.
0: So this is the early days of uh, longevity 2.0. I don't know the current age of longevity research. This is in 2012.
1: So 2013, I go to uh, GTC, meet a lot of interesting people. 2014, we actually compete. We, we started in silico in January and um, to apply deep learning. So this new technology at that time, well, new old technology that started outperforming other machine learning methods in image recognition, text recognition.
0: This is the moment of that sort of moonshot with the ImageNet result. That's
1: correct. So that was the time.
0: They won the competition, Jan LeCun.
1: But even before that, you could uh, see the early you know, birds of deep learning outperforming in many tasks. Actually, DeepMind started even earlier than that you could see that uh, people are really putting a lot of resources into deep neural nets. And Nvidia was leading, I mean, they're leading the AI revolution all the time, right? So basically Jensen at that time bet on AI and uh, realized that GPUs are better than CPUs for deep neural networks, for anything deep neural net. When I saw some of the talks, you know, early Andre Karpathy uh, talks were showed how um, deep neural networks, convolutional deep neural nets could annotate images with text, right? So you put a pizza on the stove and uh, take a picture and the deep neural network will explain that I see uh, the pizza on the stove, right? There are five slices, etc., etc. So I was like, wow, that's great. So why don't we use the same technique for um, predicting age? for age prediction and interpretation. And we started building those deep neural networks, uh, feed forward uh, and different flavors to predict human age and also to predict a variety of diseases. At that time, I had a lot of pathway-based algorithms that allow you to group genes into networks and evaluate the differentiated state change on the pathway level between norm and disease and also between young and old, for example. So you can go from the expression of 20,000 genes, 200, 300, 400 pathways that are actually meaningful. So uh, mTOR, for example, TOR is a pathway. It has multiple sub-elements. And um, AMPK is a pathway. Uh, TGF-beta is a pathway. So there are many, many, many different pathways that consist of many elements. You can group them. And we came up with a variety of algorithms that would allow you to measure this differential perturbation of those pathways, so think of it as equalizer in music, right? So we basically try to group individual sounds into patterns and see how those patterns change uh, from uh, one time to another time. And um, this technology allowed us to use deep neural networks with those exotic data types like gene expression, protein expression, just regular blood tests.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about that. I mean, so in 2013, 14, 15, the big kind of breakthroughs were basically visual processing, right? I mean, like the ImageNet stuff, or even Deep9, some of their first demos were basically taking visual information, like a video games, pixel by pixel grid, and you were already applying or designing models with different kinds of data.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a blessing and a curse, because when you do it too early, People don't really understand what you are doing, and after that, they don't really appreciate what you have done. And uh, 2015, we demonstrate our first uh, deep neural network-based predictors of age, 2016, several big papers. Now they're reasonably highly cited, but uh, most people tend to forget or not cite those papers when they are doing their own machine learning experiments with age prediction, a a generation of synthetic data using age as a generation condition. So, but I was the first one to come up with some of those techniques. And uh, at the same time, we needed to... Well, because the hunt for
0: a biological aging clock is very much on, right? I mean, folks like um, Horvaths or Morgan Levine are are working on, I guess, successor ideas in this area.
1: Steve just published his clock uh, when we got into the field. I actually visited him, I think, 2013 at UCLA. Later, I actually realized that uh, Morgan Levine was using blood tests even earlier than that, but using more traditional kind of statistical approaches to build blood-based biomarkers. And uh, in our case, we were actually not really focused on aging clocks per se. We were looking for ways to identify actionable interventions based on those markers. I'll explain. Because Insilico started not as as only a pure play aging research company. We decided that we want to create a sustainable business model. Because by that time, I realized that, well, one of the reasons why many companies fail is because they just fail to fundraise, or they lose focus, or they just fail because of technology fails. But if you are applying AI at scale, you should not in theory, fail on on technology because you are going after a very broad spectrum of interventions and biomarkers, and you can pivot very easily. And we decided to go after cancer, after uh, biomarker development and a variety of diseases, started collaborating with pharma. At that time, we were in Baltimore at the Emerging Technology Centers at Hopkins, so 2014. We started collaborating with a lot of pharma. So aging, research was kind of a bonus in addition to what we were doing in drug discovery. So original kind of mission was to identify uh, protein targets that are driving age-related diseases, well, and cancer, and cancer is also an age-related disease. We were building those predictors of age and then looking at how they correlate with certain diseases and if we can interpret them into individual protein targets that might be causal. So we also built a bunch of causal models to understand what is causing what and published a bunch of papers. So if you go to PubMed uh, or you know Google Scholar, you'll easily find me and uh, you can trace many of those papers back to 2013, 2014 for biomarker discovery, biomarker development and uh, target discovery. So in 2016, we published our first deep aging clock. Age predictor is based on blood tests utilizing deep neural networks. And a very easy to find paper. And then we also did the same for transcriptomics, for gene expression. We actually got a granted patent on that and for proteomics-based clocks. So based on that research based back in 2016, 2017, because we realized, okay, well, regardless of how much we publish... People will stop citing us anyway or not cite us because it's a revolution.
0: Well, I mean, you have hundreds of citations for some of your top papers and they are quite well cited.
1: I thought that, well, why don't we actually patent? So then it kind of gives you priority and uh, it eliminates all doubt. So we have a bunch of granted patents on all the aging clocks. And then we realized, so 2016 was a true breakthrough year for me. Because we started following, around 2015, the technology called generative adversarial networks. At that time, we always had to explain what it is, right? It's kind of two deep neural networks competing with each other. One is generating meaningful noise in response to input conditions, to desired generation conditions. And then another deep neural network is evaluating this output of the generator and trying to uh, evaluate whether it's true or false than how close it is to truth. And those two deep neural networks compete with each other. That's why it's called adversarial. One is a generator, another one is a discriminator. And after many, many iterations of, you know, presenting fake data and uh, evaluating this fake data this combo starts producing very, very high-quality output. So you've seen those beautiful birds with specific colored uh, feathers, different flowers with different number of petals. And we thought, well, where would we use this technology? And uh, we decided to apply it to two areas. One was generation of synthetic data with age as a generation condition. So, for example, you take uh, you know a picture of Brad Pitt. And you say, okay, show me a billion of bread pits, but with different ages and different conditions. Like I want more Asian features or I want more, uh, you know, female features or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Imagine doing that, but not on pictures, but on biological data, on gene expression, protein expression. So you're trying to create virtual populations based on a specific template with ages, generation condition by extrapolating the person into the future but also into the past with different starting points. That was a pretty cool idea. I actually got a grant patent on that too, I think. Then we also started working on um, applying the same technology, but for chemistry. So we thought, well, why don't we try to create molecules with the desired properties, where we start with a template molecule and then optimize it using multi-parameter optimization. And turned out, It started working, and then we increased the level of complexity plot pretty dramatically by, you know, starting with a crystal structure or starting with even transcriptional response. So trying to generate molecules with desired properties from different starting points and for different objectives, and became pretty good at that. So my first paper was 2016, and then 2017, series of papers on chemistry, and uh also 2016, 2017, we were actually not feeling very well financially because at that time one of the pharmaceutical companies kind of dropped the contract and uh also the investors did not want to give us money. And uh I was going bust, right? So I actually, you know, sold uh everything I had, put it in silica and uh, you know, we had like three, four months of cash all the time. Then Jim Mellon invested in us, the famous billionaire, but uh, a little bit, and we started burning cash quite quickly. Again, we were running out of money. And then our chemistry worked extremely well around 2017 when we started validating, so synthesizing and testing. And the way you synthesize and test nowadays, you usually send it to a contract research organization, which synthesizes the molecules and tests them, and you pay for that. So you don't do it in your own lab. And we used Wuxi AppDeck, in English it's spelled W-U-X-I, Wuxi, the largest contract research organization in chemistry, biology in the world, I think. And uh, they synthesized those molecules, tested them, saw that they work, and uh, they decided to invest in us. And since then, we actually didn't need to think about fundraising as much, because we were validated using Wuxi, and that's a huge name, because they usually, they usually invest in stuff that they validate. Then we decided to become a software company.
0: A big milestone for the company, clearly.
1: Yeah. Then we decided to become a software company. We realized, okay, well, biology is actually much more complex than we expected in aging. And uh, if we are to go after a drug discovery program ourselves right away, we're likely to fail. Because, again, everything that I saw today failed. I, mean, I was very scared about going after a drug discovery program.
0: Well, those are the odds in general, right, for entrepreneurs who are, you know, maybe if you're a PhD with a paper with an interesting result, the odds that that becomes a drug are just very, very low. And the odds that even that moves far enough along that big pharma acquires the asset are also very low. So, I mean, it's a tough game.
1: Oh, yeah. And even if you are an experienced drug hunter with a huge track record, With a long track record of success, you are still facing very similar odds. So we decided to become a software company end of 2018, raised a substantial amount of funding. At that time, we raised like 37 million from really top biotech investors because they saw what our chemistry could do. We developed uh, three software tools. One tool is called Panda Omics. It allows you to identify targets at scale, and it uses many, many different uh, approaches to do that. So some are parametric, some are like classical bioinformatics, some are deep learning, basically uh, predictories of something, interpretable predictories. Some are generative systems, some are uh, pathway-based algorithms, and some are text, right? So we basically integrated text, omics, and financial information from the market. To be able to identify targets that uh, you can basically map onto the into three-dimensional space, ranking it by uh, novelty, uh, confidence, and the commercial tractability. Every time you select a target, it's those three factors always need to be considered because if your level of novelty is low, well, most likely you are not going to make history with that. You don't want to go after a certain intervention, and we see. It's very difficult to get, for example, metformin off the ground or some very, very classical targeted interventions that have very low level of novelty, but very high level of confidence. We also developed a system called chemistry 42 that allows you to make small molecules with the desired properties very quickly. So you give it crystal or a crystal and a template molecule or a template molecule. So many, many scenarios. And uh, set the desired parameters for the molecules, and it generates those molecules for you with the desired properties. Then you synthesize, test. Some of them may fail, but some of them will work. And uh, you do it several times, uh, usually get to uh, your desired results. And that's usually cheaper than doing it using traditional methods. And uh, usually you go outside the known chemical space so that the molecules that... Uh, the system generates, uh, you would not have been able to find them in libraries. So they are completely from scratch, imagined. And uh, that system became pretty popular. When we launched th- those systems, we realized, oh, it's working for many people, right? So we started getting a lot of feedback. For example, Pandomics is pretty much uh, you know, an industry tool. Hundreds of key opinion leaders use it. They also provide feedback. If something some philosophy they pursue works and we don't have it in pandemics and they allow us to do that, we would integrate it and give it back to them and they will have one more philosophy uh, in there and everybody else would be able to use it. And also if we picked uh, some interesting philosophy and it worked for them, they also tell us and we reinforce. So we started getting a lot of feedback. So people started spending, you know, millions of dollars on validation providing us feedback, and uh, we didn't need to do that
0: validation. That worked very well. And they were sharing the data with you at this point? Because usually, I guess, people are very proprietary. They might use your tool, but they use it internally, and they might validate things experimentally, but they won't put the data back.
1: We actually don't want their data. Most of the time, I don't want their data. I want to avoid it at all costs. It's very strange coming from an AI company, right? But uh, we usually have massive amounts of data ourselves. Because we integrated about two trillion dollars' worth of grants in there, and uh, those grants are linked to omics repositories, chemistry repositories and many, many, many other things over like 50-year period. And uh, usually, Pondomics by itself provides you with a massive data repository that you can use, and you can add your own data and you can see how much does it contribute uh, from perspective of in incremental value. So we launched those tools, they became popular, we realized, oh, in order for us to make it even more popular, we should actually do a case study and show that you can link those tools together and uh, demonstrate that we can go into the human clinical trials or so, or at least to preclinical candidate level.
0: Okay, well, now this is a big change, right? I mean, because your quest that started with designing graphics chips then AI, and then thinking about AI around biology, and now building essentially a widely used enterprise software platform that many different investigators were relying on because you had put together so much of the publicly available data with models to not only find targets, but then to filter through and evaluate targets for you know novelty and efficacy, and now also like make predictions about how these things might perform in clinical trials. You're coming all the way to the point, and then you're even offering tools like Chemistry42 for designing novel compounds, all software.
1: So we decided to do our own drug discovery around 2019 and decided to go end-to-end, uh, go bold. So and in 2020, I met a really phenomenal drug hunter, Dr. Ren Feng, who at that time was heading one of the large contract research organizations called Medicillin where we went for synthesis and tests. So they were kind of an alternative to Wuxi and many others. You know, there are probably like hundreds of those CROs. And uh, he had hundreds of people reporting to him, if not thousands, a PhD from Harvard, 11 years at GSK, so professional drug hunter. And he also saw what our chemistry can do and said, well, why don't I actually help you with those programs? And the uh, during this, originally, the chief science officer, so he left a lot of money on the table as well. He wanted to discover, not you know, provide services. And um, so that was my actually biggest discovery in, the, in my life. So getting Dr. Ren to join me, and uh, he very quickly built the drug discovery uh, team. Uh, and 2021, in February, we nominated our first preclinical candidate, our antifibrotic, that we purpose towards idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. We actually identified this target in part using our aging research tools as well. So I wanted to find a target that uh, would play a big role in a disease, but at the same time uh, could be used uh, to at least probe some of the aging associated processes. I believe that fibrosis is an extremely important process that we need to be able to control and to modulate. Because when we're young, we need it a lot. And when we're old, you get too much of that scar tissue that is very difficult to replace, right? And replenish with useful tissue. It's one of the reasons why we age, the causes of aging. And at the same time, uh, it's a consequence of, of aging. So too much fibrosis. I decided that we're going to go after fibrosis. We nominate a preclinical candidate. Then we also nominated a preclinical candidate for kidney fibrosis. By the way, I just need to explain what uh, nomination of the preclinical candidate is. It's kind of like a PhD defense. At that time, you need to demonstrate that your target is um, valid. So you demonstrate in vitro experiments, a large data package. You need to demonstrate usually two in vivo experiments, also very large data package in mice or other uh, animals. And whatever other experiments you need to Perform in order for the uh, scientific advisory board uh, and your preclinical candidate nomination board to actually pass it through the review. And usually those are high-profile scientists. And um, you nominate the preclinical candidate with your own chemistry. If they don't like the chemistry, you have to go back and redo it. And one of the criteria for this chemistry, it needs to be novel and needs to outperform whatever is out there in the market right? It needs to be selective. It needs to be metabolically stable, ideally orally available. So it's not that easy to get to the stage. And uh, we demonstrated uh, the preclinical candidates for uh, kidney fibrosis and uh, IPF 2021 mid-year, both, and decided that, oh, well, we got to this stage, why don't we actually go further and also do many more programs now? Because now we can actually create many more of those programs and sell them to pharma. Because instead of trying to become a service provider or a software provider, you can actually try to develop your own and uh, as far as possible, and then either develop, continue developing or sell them to pharma. And uh, very rapidly, we managed to fundraise. So we raised about $300 million at the time from also mostly biotech investors. And, uh, decided to go after drug discovery programs. And in 2022, we nominated nine preclinical candidates and uh, our antifibrotic entered phase one clinical trials in uh, uh, New Zealand and in China. Now, we, so far, we have nominated 14, got three clinical stage programs. And we also demonstrated now we can partner with pharma around uh, lead stage assets. So it's before preclinical candidates. And got pretty substantial upfront. So we did a deal with Fosson Pharma, they gave us 13 million upfront. We still have 50% on the molecule. We took it to preclinical candidates together. And for immune oncology, it's a target called QPCTL and CD forty seven pathway. I actually think it also is implicated in aging and indirectly, right, for immune system modulation, just like actually several other checkpoint inhibitors. We got it almost through IND enabling studies now. That was a pretty cool experience.
0: And so this last, I guess, four years since 2019, the transformation was, let's develop assets and then partner with pharma, make sure that we earn some revenue or get paid for that upfront engineering work, and then continue to have a piece of the value of the asset over time. And I suppose there's other drug discovery companies like Recursion or Schrodinger, where this is also the, the approach, yeah. You know?
1: They do it slightly differently, but the idea is similar. Yeah. They they all are very different from what we do uh, in terms of the methodology of drug discovery and also the target choices. In general, it's uh, the same approach.
0: The commercial model.
1: I mean, the same business model. Yeah.
0: Incredible. And so in a short time... There's a dozen candidates, whereas in the first six or seven years of the business, you were building a lot of the enabling platforms.
1: We had to build the platform. Yeah. So the problem with AI-powered drug discovery is it seems like a low-hanging fruit, right? So you think, oh, you know what? Those large language models perform extremely well in many, many tasks. Why don't we use them for target discovery? And then all oh, those those diffusion models are great at uh, generating you know, 3D objects. Why, or 2D objects, why don't we use them for design of biologics, or for small molecules? And then you realize that it takes you six months to develop a model, another six months to develop it a software package, and then it takes you six years to validate it. So to ensure that generation conditions are confirmed. And then once you start doing that, you also realize, oh. There are many, many, many more pieces of the puzzle in drug discovery. There is probably like two hundred pieces, and one piece is for example, protein structure prediction, so you have alpha fold, but it's actually better to use the real crystal and um many, many, many other two small pieces, like for example, you know toxicity prediction or uh, formulation or combinations, or ensuring metabolic stability and oral availability. So there are many, many, many things that you never thought would be important, but then you realize they're critical. And every step, or synthetic accessibility, for example, how easy it is to synthesize the molecule. Because if the molecule is difficult to synthesize, you might uh, get stuck in synthesis for a year spend uh, many millions of dollars and actually not get to what you want. It's much better to synthesize, to select molecules that are easy to synthesize, right? And where you have a synthetic route, AI can be used for that as well. We use it for that purpose as well. And uh, you generate with the synthetic accessibility as a generation condition in mind, then you filter for synthetic accessibility, and then you also do the synthetic route planning. All that can be done by AI when you start the program, and when you don't have a lot of experience in that, you know, it sounds trivial, but then you realize that it's very difficult. And you have to have this entire workflow worked out in order for you to be great at drug discovery. So it takes years to to develop.
0: But is it true that you would have to replace every step of the job and put it all in silico? I presume like, you know, piece by piece, Software starts replacing the work to be done. And so I guess there's a lot of just sort of incomplete solutions that might help you with one of the tasks. And I suppose your point is you've had to automate so many of the aspects of the workflow. That's the only way you can really get fast.
1: Yeah, but for that, you need to collaborate with pharma as well. That's one of the reasons why we spend so much time working with pharma, biotech, academia to actually gain that experience Because very often uh, you don't know which service provider to use, for example, or which technique works better for what application, and uh, you build up experience. And uh, sometimes it's worthwhile to work with somebody who has done it many, many times over and failed.
0: And of course, this is also your argument for the unique capabilities in Silico, because there's a thousand and one brand new companies floating around that are AI for drug discovery or AI for whatever step. Each of these might be a specific piece, but it's gonna take a lot before they can build the full scope enterprise grade platform that you have.
1: Oh yeah, this process requires a team. Another main advantage that we've got is that we've got um, people all over the world. So we heavily rely on China, for example, for a synthesis and test, and there we have established uh, working relationships where if I want to put the pedal on the metal, I can synthesize a lot. If I don't need to have a lot of synthesis, I can uh, pause. If I need to develop very sophisticated biological assays, uh, there is a place for that as well. Uh, If I need to have simpler off-the-shelf assays, uh, I can very quickly do that as well. So it's also operational efficiency that you gain. And you also realize that, uh, you know, what we achieved so far, we also got extremely lucky. I'm just looking at my PowerPoints sometimes from 2015, 2016. And, you know, if I were to pitch to myself today, I would have never given myself money back then. Because uh, I just, the probability of success was very, very low. So it's just we pulled it through, we got lucky, and uh, many, many other companies. So when we started, there were probably 500 other AI companies out there, or quote unquote AI companies. And you know what? Most are not there anymore.
0: I want to pause for a minute here and talk to you about Life Extension Ventures. It's the reason I'm doing this series for In the Know. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund dedicated to working towards the longevity of people and planet. The future of humanity depends on our planet surviving and its potential can really only be unlocked if we focus on some of the technologies, some of the breakthrough science that's making it possible for us to live longer and better lives. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund focused on supporting visionary founders that are working towards longevity of people and planet. It's the future of humanity that they're working on and we wanna back them. I spent a lot of time as a science person, as an academic, as a student, and then I spent even more time becoming a company builder and venture investor. And with Life Extension Ventures, I'm bringing both of those things together with my partner, Yaki Berenger. It's got a similar story And we're out there finding folks who want to build companies that can really make a difference for human life. We'll need this planet if we want to survive, and we'll need to focus on these breakthrough technologies if we really want to unlock human potential. So here we are doing it and sharing with you in this episode is uh, some of the breakthrough science that we've been learning about and trying to back. Well, what about predictions for the future, Alex, just as a last theme a little, I think you've characterized this like thrilling journey to the point that we're at now. What do you think the next few years hold? I mean, the sophistication of your platform, you made 10 assets in a year, you know, maybe you'll make a hundred assets in in a year, not too long from now. And is is that something that's going to be happening happening across the industry? I mean, is medicine just moving faster?
1: I spent too much time explaining you know, my path, but uh, uh, we should have spent more time actually discussing the future. And I think that the future is in the integration of AI and robotics. So about two years ago, I started building a massive robotics facility that allows you to do target discovery at scale and that generates the data for generative systems in order to train really sophisticated multi-model uh, transformers that allow you to do target discovery and at the same time aging clock development and at the same time interpret the biological processes. So I think that large language models and uh, transformer-based uh, multimodal systems will allow us to go very deep into biology and uh, have a much better understanding of uh, what targets to go after and uh, key driving forces behind many mechanisms of aging. The integration of those large language models and uh, again, multimodal transformer-based systems, not necessarily large language models, because we also use other uh, types of data, with robotics, that is the next big thing. We are increasing the operational efficiency now in target discovery, target validation. Also starting to go after novel targets. So we train AI to do kind of genuine scientific exploration. So not just uh, trying to find something that it already knows, but to try to explore and identify something completely new and signal, right, and also make um, a good description of uh, An interpretation of why Uh, it thinks that it's, for example, a promising target or a novel biological process. And uh, we've built a lab that allows you to do uh, transcriptional and methylation and phenotypic response. We basically get a sample in, get methylation, transcriptomics, a few other data types, and imaging uh, and high content imaging as well. All this data is being used by AI to identify promising targets for those that have tool compounds. We can pick those compounds uh, and incubate the uh, incoming samples with those compounds, and then do it all over again. Uh, Methylation, transcriptomics, a few other data types, and uh, high content imaging, uh, fluorescence. uh, And you can evaluate how these compounds that you use affected the original sample. And we can do aging clocks and also multimodal aging clocks. I just published one called Precious One GPT. You can see if uh, you have moved the needle of any of those aging clocks uh, with the target predicted to do so. And at the same time, of course, we're looking after diseases. So I think that the level of sophistication of target discovery and biological exploration will increase pretty dramatically in the next couple of years. So we will start understanding the fundamental human biology at a new level. We will understand the chemical reprogramming much better and also other reprogramming techniques, manipulating cells to assume a certain state and reprogram. And then uh, not only cells, but entire uh, systems. For in silica, of course, we want to increase the number of uh, preclinical candidates that we can generate. And we also need to change the way pharma partners, because currently they either partner too early and those programs never get to uh, development because just management changes, strategy changes or, uh, you know, those programs fail. Or they like to partner too late, right, which is a phase two complete when the drug is already uh, de-risked uh, the clinical study is complete and hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent uh, or tens of millions of dollars have been spent
0: so what's the ideal model what do we want what do we want pharma to evolve towards the
1: ideal model you get to preclinical candidate you partner with pharma on clinical study design they allow you to tap into their knowledge base they're usually very good at clinical study design and into their strategy, where you also pursue certain combination strategies, because they usually have uh, certain drugs that work really well in certain indications. And they might be, you know, there might be some patent expirations and uh, other strategic uh, pressures that require them to increase the efficacy and novelty, and they can combine some of those drugs with the new drugs that are incoming into the pipeline we can partner at preclinical candidate, do the clinical study design together, and then take it into the clinic together, or they take it into the clinic themselves, offload at preclinical candidate stage. That would be the most ideal way to partner. And if you partner at that level, people who do the deal, they actually have a chance to see their dro- the, the, the drugs that they licensed into you know, phase two complete state, because it still will take them three, four years to get to the stage. And they need to stay with the company. Many of them just move. They license in something, and then they just go somewhere else. And that's it.
0: Well, you describe pharma uh, sometimes, I mean, many of us as like a monolithic thing. But are there some partners who you think are the most progressive that are adopting this more portfolio style model for early partnership development? Or is that sort of standard? Everyone does it? Or, you know, it's we're just incrementally evolving.
1: It depends. So they go in wave. So sometimes the new CSO comes in or a new CEO comes in and says, well, you know what, we're going to be partnering. And then the next one comes in and says, oh, we're going to be developing internally. Usually it's a combination of both.
0: Like in all the corporate universes. Yeah.
1: yeah there are multiple uh, papers published on evaluating uh, internal and external R&D productivity of big pharmaceutical companies. And uh, I don't even want to comment on that. So we want to ensure that we create a steady flow of those high-quality preclinical candidates. And uh, whenever we see fit, we will progress into the clinic. It's not our intention to be a fully-fledged uh, pharmaceutical companies and you know, complete those clinical trials and go and market them to patients, even though I never say never nowadays. But we want to ensure that we are excellent at preclinical. Since it's a longevity podcast, I also must say that the pharmaceutical interventions are not going to push the needle in a dramatic way. So you might get 20-30% maybe of uh, life and not necessarily high quality life. But in general, pharmaceuticals, I wouldn't uh, count on them much because currently we've uh, seen many, many, many compounds being tested for longevity in animals. And uh, there are some that work extremely well. They're very, very rare. So very rarely you see anything that gives you more than 5%, right? But tropomyosin, for example, gives you more than 10% consistently. And in combination with other drugs, it gives you, well, some experiments in animals demonstrate 19%. And If you believe that it is affecting the fundamental aging pathways, your best choice is to exploit that drug already. But we don't see a lot of people exploiting it, right? It's becoming more popular, but it kind of shows you that the level of adoption is not going to be like wildfire. Even if you create those anti... Imagine that my program one is an anti-aging compound, the anti-fibrotic, just imagine if it reaches uh, the market in, you know, a few years, let's say it's 2028, and demonstrates efficacy in fibrosis and multiple types of fibrosis, and then somebody decides to repurpose it for aging, it will be in the same class as rapamycin. People will need to kind of get some proof that it works in aging, even if you demonstrate that, okay, it works in uh, animals, and uh, it does something to the clock in humans, you still are unlikely to see people taking it. But those taking it should not expect a huge age reversal, for example. We just haven't
0: seen. Like a short-term observable benefit. I mean, I think that's one of the puzzles for many of the longevity. I mean, well, the weight loss drugs, the um, semaglutides like the, you know, the Wegovy and the Ozempic, those I think are about to become the biggest drugs in the world. And they give you a very clear short-term benefit, which I think has a long-term longevity benefit too, right?
1: Yeah, but if you look at how those drugs work long-term, you know, we don't know how much of this weight loss is muscle. I actually think that uh, there is a chance Bad badmouth any of those drugs. I'm not taking them myself. I don't know how much of that weight loss is muscle. So if you are just aiming for weight loss, just
0: yeah, and then that would be a bad thing, because that is one of the things that I guess in aging starts creating important risks. Um, as people do age, what other the things that are commonly available? Do you think are underutilized? I mean, I know that you must um, have uh, an interesting set of things in your medicine ch- cabinet. It sounds like rapamycin is, is a promising one. What do you think is also low risk and potentially worth doing?
1: Well, I think that if you are, again, it's not a recommendation in any way, and it's not a claim that I'm doing that, going seriously and betting on rapamycin, even if you optimize the rapamycin regimen, you are going to be taking a bunch of other possible geroprotectors in addition to rapamycin, right? Because uh, right now there is a huge argument whether it causes hypoglycemia, hyperlipidemia, and other side effects uh, that could be easily avoided by taking it with, you know, Acarbose, Metformin, HL22Is, and uh, several others could be avoided by taking a higher dose of vitamin B, and um, a few other things, right, maybe an NSAID. Many of those actually have individual longevity benefits. I think you need to look at this as a comprehensive combination therapy, so not just as individual drugs. And I think that the clear leader here is rapamycin because in ITP studies, it demonstrates substantial life extension benefits. We um, published a patent not that long time ago uh, on kind of 5R strategy where we um, look at uh, sequential and combination treatment of aging using a variety of interventions, and that would be, uh, you know, first you reverse senescence and pre-senescent cells, administer a senolytic, right, so then you um, kill senescent cells, prevent fibrosis, uh, ensure that you rejuvenate the niches, ensure that uh, stem cells are activated and uh, are ready to repopulate the um, freed up uh, niches. And then you reinforce, so you need to ensure that uh, um, you protect uh, uh, this recycled tissue, so to speak, to, with, from further damage. And we provide a list of possible compounds. But that's just, uh, it, it's, it's a hypothetical approach for a combination longevity intervention, where you also have sequences. With rapamycin, uh, rapamycin is the same, right? So you first uh, target the fundamental aging pathway. And then you look at ways to ameliorate the um, side effects, the side effects with possibly possible geroprotectors. So it's kind of my logic. But uh, again, I don't have super high hopes for pharmaceutical approaches in longevity in general. It's a great way to start and give us a little bit of a head start. Also, understand uh, fundamental human biology and uh, ensure that we get uh, financially sustainable models around longevity. I think that we need to go regenerative medicine to have a bigger bang for the buck. Well, Alex,
0: for our deep dive into regenerative medicine, we'll have to wait till the next time we get you on, on the show. I mean, this discussion has been amazing and very inspiring about the power of AI to accelerate medicine and um, across the industry, really just change how the whole system works. Thank you for taking time to talk
1: to me. Yeah, and I think that great, great uh, place to start uh, learning about aging and longevity is the ARDD conference, the uh, Aging Research and Drug Discovery Conference in Copenhagen. So it's uh, August 28th to September 1st this year. It's actually a five-day event. Uh, And uh, everybody in aging is there, Uh, many pharmas. Uh, You've got uh, also... um, Capital there, you've got uh, consulting companies, so it's a it's a good mix of uh, industry, academia, and uh, uh, and analysts, uh, and pharma. And I think that it's a it's a very good place to start. This year is the tenth annual, and it's going to be epic.
0: Amazing, amazing. Well, I hope some of our listeners will be there, and I'll I'll hunt you down. I'll hunt you down there too. Alex, thank you again for being on. Uh, This episode will, I think, come out before uh, this conference at the end of August. Um, But thanks for making time here in July.